Matthew chapter 12, verses 17 through 50. Verse 17 through 21. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant who I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Burkett Notes That is, our blessed Savior did those good acts before spoken of, that it might appear that he was the true Messiah, prophesied of by Isaiah the prophet, chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. Behold my servant whom I have set apart for accomplishing the work of salvation for a lost world. He, by the fullness of my spirit, shall teach the nations the way of truth and righteousness. He shall not subdue men by force and violence, but as the Prince of Peace, shall deal gently with the weak, and cherish the least measures of grace and degrees of goodness. Observe here one, a description of Christ as mediator. He is God the Father's servant, employed in the most noble service, namely that of instructing and saving a lost world. Observe, too, with what meekness and gentleness Christ sets up his spiritual kingdom in the world. He doth not with noise and clamor, with force and violence, subdue and conquer, but with meekness and gentleness gains persons' consent to his government and authority. Observe, three, the gentle carriage of Christ entreating those of infirmer grace. He doth and will graciously preserve and tenderly cherish the smallest beginnings, the weakest measures, the lowest degrees of sincere grace, which he observes in any of his children and people. By the bruised reed and smoking flax, understand, such as are broken with the sense of sin, such as are weak in faith, such as are so much overpowered by corruption that they do rather smoke than burn or shine, Such as are thus low and mean in spirituals, Christ will not break with his power, nor quench with his rebukes, till he has perfected their conversion, and their weak grace is become victorious. Verses 22 through 24. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed, and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Burkett notes, As a further instance of Christ's miraculous power, he healeth one whom the devil hath cast into a disease which deprived him of both speech and sight. At this miracle, the multitude wonder, saying, Is not this the son of David? That is, the promised Messiah. The Pharisee, hearing this, with great bitterness and contempt, said, This fellow cast out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Observe hence how obstinacy and malice will make men misconstrue the actions of the most holy and innocent. Christ casts out devils, say the Pharisee, by the help of the devil. There never was any person so good, nor any action so gracious, but they have been subject both to censure and misconstruction. The best way is to square our actions by the right rule of justice and charity, and then let the world pass their censures at their pleasure. 
When the holy and innocent Jesus was thus assaulted, what wonder is it if we, his sinful servants, are branded on all sides by reviling tongues? Why should we expect better treatment than the Son of God? Verses 25 through 30. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathered not with me scattereth abroad. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, to clear his innocence, and to convince the Pharisees of the unreasonableness of their calumny and false accusations, offers several arguments to their consideration. One, that it was very unlikely that Satan should lend him this power to use against himself. As Satan has a kingdom, so he has wit enough to preserve his kingdom, and will do nothing to weaken his own interest. Now, if I have received my power from Satan for destroying him and his kingdom, then is Satan divided against himself. Two, our Savior tells them they might with as much reason attribute all the miracles to the devil as those which were wrought by him. There were certain Jews among themselves who cast out devils in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Christ asks the Pharisees by what power these, their children, cast them out. They acknowledged that those did it by the power of God, and there was no cause but their malice why they should not acknowledge that what he did was by the same power. If I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. That is, the Messiah is come because he wrought these miracles to prove that he was the Messiah. Another argument to prove the miracles which Christ wrought were by the power of God and not by the help of Satan is this. The devil is very strong and powerful, and there is no power but God's only that is stronger than his. Now, says Christ, if I were not assisted by a divine power, I could never cast out this strong man who reigns in the world as in his house. It must be a stronger than the strong man that shall bind Satan. And who is he but the God of strength? Verses 31 and 32. Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Burkett notes, Observe one how our Savior makes a difference between speaking against the Son of Man and speaking against the Holy Ghost. By speaking against the Son of Man is meant all those reproaches that were cast upon our Savior's person as man, without reflecting upon his divine power as God, which he testified by his miracles. Such were their reproaching him with the meanness of his birth, they're censuring him for a wine-biber and a glutton and the like. But by speaking against the Holy Ghost is meant they're blaspheming and reproaching that divine power whereby he wrought his miracles, which was an immediate reflection upon the Holy Spirit and a blaspheming of him. Observe, too, 
the nature of this sin of speaking against the Holy Ghost. It consists of this, that the Pharisees, seeing our Savior work miracles and cast out devils by the Spirit of God, contrary to the conviction of their own minds, they maliciously ascribed as miracles to the power of the devil, charging him to be a sorcerer and a magician, and to have a familiar spirit by whose help he did those mighty works, when in truth he did them by the Spirit of God. Observe 3. That this sin above all others is called unpardonable, and upon what account it is so. The case of such blasphemers of the Holy Spirit is not only dangerous but desperate, because they resist their last remedy and oppose the best means for their conviction. What can God do more to convince a man that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah than to work miracles for that purpose? Now, if when men see plain miracles wrought, they will say it is not God that works them, but the devil, as if Satan would conspire against himself and seek the ruin of his own kingdom, there is no way left to convince such persons, but they must and will continue in their opposition to truth to their inevitable condemnation. Verse 33. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. Burkett notes. These words may either refer to the Pharisees or to Christ himself. If to the Pharisees, the sense is, you hypocritical Pharisees, show yourselves what you are by your words and actions, even as the fruit showeth what the tree is. If they refer to Christ, then they are an appeal to the Pharisees themselves to judge our Savior and his doctrine by the miracles which he wrought. If he wrought by the devil, his works would be as bad as the devil's. But if his works were good, they must own them to be wrought by the power of God. The expression implies that a man may be known by his action as a tree may be known by his fruit, yet not by a single action, but by a series of actions, and not by a particular act, but by our general course. Verse 34. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Burkett notes, Note here, one, the fervency and zeal of our Savior's spirit in the compilation given to the Pharisees. He calls them a generation of vipers, intimating that they were a venomous and dangerous sort of men. Learn, hence, that it is not always railing and indiscreet zeal to call wicked men by such names as their sins deserve. Observe further, from our Savior saying that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. That is, the heart is the fountain, both of words and actions. According as the heart is, so is the current of men's words and actions, either good or evil. Verse 35. A good man, out of the treasure of the heart, bringeth forth good things. An evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. Burkett notes. Observe here, a double treasure discovered in the heart of man. One, an evil treasure of sin and corruption, both natural and acquired, from whence proceed evil things. Now this is called a treasure, not for the preciousness of it, but for the abundance of it. A little doth not make a treasure, and also for the continuance of it. Though it be perpetually overflowing in the life, yet doth the heart continue full. This treasure of original corruption in man's nature may be drawn low in this life by sanctifying grace, but it can never be drawn dry. 2. 
Here is a good treasure of grace discovered in a sanctified and renewed man, which the source and spring from whence all gracious actions do proceed and flow. For as the heart of man by nature is the fountain from whence all sin springs, so the heart renewed by grace is the source and spring from whence all gracious actions do proceed and flow. Verse 36. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Burkett notes, I say unto you, I, that have always been in my father's bosom, and fully know his mind, I, that am constituted judge of the quick and dead, and understand the rule of judgment, I, even I, do assure you that every word that has no tendency to promote the glory of God, or some way the good of others, will fall under censure at the great day, without an intervening repentance. Note here that there are two sorts of words for which we must be judged, sinful words and idle words. Sinful words are blasphemous words, censorious words, lying and slandering words. Idle words are such as savor nothing of wisdom and piety, that have no tendency to make men either wiser or better. How light soever men make their words now, yet in God's balance another day, they will be found to weigh very heavy. What a bridle should this text be to extravagant tongues? See Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech be always seasoned with salt, that is, with wisdom, etc. For our words may mischief others a long time after they are spoken. How many years may a frothy or filthy word, a profane scoff, an atheistical jest stick in the minds of them that hear it, after the tongue that spake it is dead? A word spoken is physically transient, but morally permanent. Verse 37. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Burkett notes. Observe here the argument which our Savior uses to move us to watchfulness over our words. By our words we shall be justified, not meritoriously, but declaratively. Good words declare goodness in ourselves, and we shall be declared good to others by our words, if our words and actions do correspond and agree with one another. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, that is, According to the right and wrong using of the tongue, we may judge and gather whether men are dead or alive as to God, and bound for heaven or hell. Doubtless justification or condemnation will pass upon men at the day of judgment, according to the state of the person and the frame of the heart. Now our words will justify or condemn us in that day, as evidences of the state and frame of the soul. We used to say, such witnesses hanged a man, that is, the evidence they gave cast and condemned him. Oh, think of this seriously. If words evidence the state of thy soul, what a hellish state must thy soul be in who has inured thyself to the language of hell, to oaths and curses, sins whereby the devil cheats men more than by any sins whatsoever. They are damned for them, yet get nothing by them, neither profit nor pleasure. Verses 38 through 42. Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Ninevites shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, 
because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it, for she came from the uppermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Burkett notes. Observe here, one, the request which the Pharisees make to Christ. Master, we would see a sign from thee. But had not Christ shown them signs enough already? What were all the miracles wrought in their sight but convincing signs that he was the true Messiah? But infidelity mixed with obstinacy is never satisfied. Observe, too, our Savior's answer to the Pharisees' request. He tells them that they should have one sign more, to wit, that of his resurrection from the dead. For as Jonah lay buried three days in the whale's belly, and was then wonderfully restored, so should and did our Savior continue in the grave, part of three natural days, and then rise again. Observe 3. How Christ declares the inexcusableness of their state, who would not be convinced by the former miracles he had wrought that he was the true Messiah, nor yet to be brought to believe in him by this last sign or miracle of his resurrection. The Ninevites shall condemn the Pharisee. They repented at the preaching of Jonah, but these would not be convinced by the preaching and miracles of Jesus. The queen of Sheba, who also came from the south to hear and admire the wisdom of Solomon, shall rise up in judgment against those that reject Christ, who is the wisdom of the Father and the doctrine delivered by him, which was the power of God and the wisdom of God. Learn that the sins of infidelity and impenitency are exceedingly heightened, and their guilt aggravated from the means afforded by God to bring a people to faith and obedience. The sin of the Pharisees in rejecting Christ's miracle and ministry was by far greater than that of the Ninevites that had rejected Jonah's message and the ministry sent by God amongst them. Verses 43 through 45. And when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from which I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so, it shall be unto this wicked generation. Burkett notes, The design and scope of this parable is to show that the Pharisees, by rejecting the gospel and refusing to believe in Christ, were in a sevenfold worse condition than if the gospel had never been preached to them, and a Savior had never come among them. Because by our Savior's ministry, Satan was in some sort cast out. But for rejecting Christ and his grace, Satan had gotten a sevenfold stronger possession of them now than before. From this parable learn, 1 that Satan is an unclean spirit. He has lost his original purity, his holy nature, in which he was created, and has become universally filthy in himself, no means being allowed him by God for purging his filthy and unclean nature. Nay, he is a perfect enemy to purity and holiness, maligning all that love it and would promote it. 2. That Satan is a restless and unquiet spirit. Being cast out of heaven, he can rest nowhere where he is either gone out of man through policy or cast out of man by power, he has no content or satisfaction till he returns into a filthy heart, where he delights to be as the swine in miry places. 3. That wicked and profane sinners have this unclean spirit dwelling in them. Their hearts are Satan's house and habitation, and the lusts of pride and unbelief 
malice and revenge, envy and hypocrisy. These are the garnishings of Satan's house. Man's heart was God's house by creation. Now it's Satan's by usurpation and judiciary tradition. For the Satan, by the preaching of the gospel, may seem to go out of persons, may become sober and civilized. Yet may he return to his old habitation, and the last end of that man may be worse than the beginning. Verses 46 through 50. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand towards his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and brethren, for whoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the verity of Christ's human nature. He had affinity and consanguity with men, persons near in blood to him. He called his brethren, that is, his cousin Germans. Two, that the Holy Virgin herself was not wholly free from failings and infirmities. For here she does untimely and unseasonably interrupt our Savior when preaching to the people and employed about his father's business. Three, that Christ did not neglect his Holy Mother nor disregard his near relations, only showed that he preferred his father's service before them. Learn four, how dear believers are to Jesus Christ. He prefers his spiritual kindred before his natural. Alliance and faith and spiritual relation to Christ is much nearer and dearer than alliance by blood. To bear Christ in the heart is much better than to bear him in the womb. Blessed be God, this greatest privilege is not denied to us even now. Though see Christ we cannot, yet love him we may. His bodily presence cannot be enjoyed by us, but his spiritual presence is not denied us. Though Christ be not ours, in house, in arms, in affinity, in consanguity, yet in heart, in faith, in love, in service, he is or may be ours. Verily, spiritual regeneration brings men into a more honorable relation to Christ than natural generation ever did. Whosoever shall do the will of my Father, he is my brother and sister and mother.